0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
1: Now, therefore, you are hereby ordered, commanded, and required to execute the said sentence upon him, the said William Kimmler, otherwise called John Hort upon some day within the week commencing on monday the twenty-fourth day of june in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and eighty nine and within the walls of auburn state prison or within the yard or enclosure adjoining thereto by then and there causing to pass through the body of him the said william Kimmler, otherwise called john hort a current of electricity of sufficient intensity to cause death and that the application of such current of electricity be continued until he, the said William Kimmler, otherwise called John Hort, be dead. Gentlemen, I
0: wish you all good luck. I believe I'm going to a good place and I'm ready to go. I only want to say that a great deal has been said about me that is untrue. I'm bad
1: enough. It is cruel to make me out worse. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And those were a couple of quotes concerning the death of one William Kemmler, the first person in the world ever to be legally executed
1: by electric chair. That's right. This was, uh, 1889. And as we'll roll out in these episodes, uh, this week on electricity, on the sort of the weird history of electricity, uh, the, this, this episode, this uh, electric execution kind of serves as like the, the final, um thrashing moment uh, for the, the mysticism of electricity, the sort of supernatural zeal that surrounded it for so long.
0: I remember when I was growing up and I learned that the Constitution of the United States prohibited cruel and unusual punishment of criminals. And then I tried to reconcile that with the fact that people were executed by electric chair. It yeah. was just hard to think of a stranger way to kill somebody on purpose
1: yeah and i i think that will i think that will become clear to everyone especially in the second episode when we get into the details of this about how how this came to be on the table, how the argument was made that we should electrocute a prisoner, uh, why it was a good idea, and and why it was the most modern and humane and hygienic thing to do. Yeah, so this is going to be the first part of a two-part
0: series on the weird history of electricity, as we've said, and we want to focus on a different side of the story of electricity than you probably learned about in school. So you've probably learned about things like, uh, uh, Benjamin Frank, some of Benjamin Franklin's experiments and, uh, and how the battery was invented and the voltaic pile. And eventually Thomas Edison and uh, and maybe if your teacher was pretty cool, Nikola Tesla and the, you know, the current wars and and stuff like that. But we want to look at a different side of how electricity came to be a fixture of of our society
1: today and not just the technological journey, but the spiritual journey. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, if you want more on that technical journey, uh, do go to howstuffworks.com and check out the article how electricity works. That's by Marshall Brain, William Harris and. And, uh, and me to a very limited extent. I think I touched up that article at one point, but mostly it's, uh, it's Brain and Harris, uh, that could be a thank for that article. But, what, did do you, did you have to add
0: updates, all the new things we've discovered <laughs> about electricity in the past few I years? I think
1: I basically did punch up on it in the same way that, uh, you know, a comedian might punch up a, a script. I like went in there and, uh, made it a little more fun at the beginning and, uh, updated the references, but otherwise, uh, left all the technical information, uh, uh, as is. Uh, but, but yeah, this is about, Sort of the, the spiritual journey of of electricity, the the cultural journey of electricity from from the realm of the magical to the realm of the mundane. Mm-hmm. And as I was thinking about these episodes, actually this morning in the shower and on the, the drive into work, I kept thinking of it in terms of uh, of a transformer. Okay, uh, like like you see, uh, you know, on, on uh, with high tension wires. Yeah. So. The times, experiments, and thoughts that we're going to present in this pair of podcasts, they serve as a sort of transformer. So a transformer decreases the voltage of alternating current, turning a dangerous high-voltage current that's capable of traveling long distances into a lower-voltage current that's appropriate for just mundane use in your home. So these events that we're going to discuss are are the inner workings of the cultural transformer that transformed electricity from a magical holy spiritual otherworldly energy into something that you can just completely take for granted every day of your life
0: okay well let's let's go back in time from the execution of William Kimmler and go all the way back to the earliest things we know about electricity. Because before humans began to recognize and test electromagnetism as a force of physics, we were aware of it and several natural settings, for example, lightning, that's pretty obvious, uh, mm-hmm. the shocks of electric fishes and objects that naturally pulled toward one another through some invisible attraction. So you might have a, a lodestone or, you know, the name for magnetite, or, or you might find that friction, you know, or just rubbing one object against another could cause attraction. And, and before we had even the slightest idea what electricity was, its power found a way into our metaphors. We naturally recognized that there was something, uh, very mysterious and important going on in these invisible forces. So for example, in Plato's Meno dialogue, you know, uh, you remember this one, the Meno, uh, he compares Socrates' style of argument to a torpedo ray, <laughs> which is a, it's a type of electric fish. It's a genus of a ray. That stuns prey and enemies with jolts of electric charge issued through the water. And the point of the comparison is that Socrates stuns his interlocutors into a state of just utter perplexity by uh, illuminating the aporia, the realization of an internal contradiction in one's worldview. Okay. In other words, he's dropping truth bombs. Exactly. And he's just stunning you with his truth bombs. That's, okay. that's a very similar metaphor, I'd say, <laughs> except they wouldn't say truth bombs because they didn't have bombs, but they did have electric fish. Ah, there so, you go. so he's
1: dropping truth torpedo fish. Okay. And just an aside, there are there are numerous electric fish out there, uh, the the electric eel, which is a, more of an electric catfish, tends to get most of the press because it is the most electric fish. Uh-huh. Uh, but there are varying levels of electric fish out there, ranging from those that stun their prey to those that use it as more of a, a communication sensory uh, scenario. Yeah. And then there's uh, Thales of Miletus. Uh, so this is a Greek philosopher known as one of the legendary Seven Wise Men. And he may have been the first human to really study electricity. And this would have been around uh, 600 uh, BCE. Now, he was the one who was doing friction experiments. Yes, right? he would take amber, so you know fossilized tree resin. Ho- the stuff from Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, there's an insect in there, something right. kind of you know crippled and and, uh, and frozen in time. But he didn't come up with the idea to get its DNA out. No, he wasn't quite up to that level. Unless you want to view the resulting spark here as like the soul of the the bug leaving the the amber. Uh, so he'd rub the amber with fur, and he was able to attract dust, feathers, and other lightweight objects. And so these were the first experiments with electrostatics, the study of, of stationary electric charges uh, or static electricity. In fact, the word electricity comes from the Greek electron, which means amber.
0: Yeah, and what else the ancients knew about electricity, it's... It, it's hard to know. There, There is, of course, the quite famous uh, Baghdad battery, which I think most archaeologists now think was not actually a battery. But mm-hmm. the idea there was that there was a clay jar and then found near it were some metal elements that if arranged in the right way, perhaps could have. Uh, accumulated electric charge i've read that archaeologists now just almost all agree that it was just a normal ordinary storage jar it was not actually a battery but one could hope you know you yeah. always you always kind of think wouldn't it be cool if there was some ancient person who who had knowledge way ahead of their time and and it was just lost to history because maybe i don't know they didn't write it down or nobody would believe them uh but People recognized there was a force at work. There was electromagnetic attraction. There was static discharge, shocks, sparks, arcs. But what was it? People commonly spoke about it using sort of familiar but vague or incorrect points of comparison, like Benjamin Franklin in his letters and notes in the mid-1700s spoke of the electrical fire. This was a common Mm -hmm. point of comparison. People would speak of the, the fire that that carries the electrical fluid. Or in even in 1889, much later, Thomas Edison, who worked with electricity in a technological sense, he could command electricity to do his bidding. Yet when asked what it was, he vaguely explained that electricity
1: was a mode of motion, a system of vibrations. Yeah, I love this quote because uh, apparently Edison was just out there pressing the flesh. It was like a formal engagement. I think he was having lunch with somebody at
0: the Eiffel Tower. Yeah,
1: and then somebody uh, asked him, so... Edison, electricity is your thing. Tell me what is it. And blah, blah, blah. this is all he could really <laughs> come up with.
0: Yeah. And so even after people were performing experiments with electricity, even creating some electrical technologies that they were using for, for purposes in, uh, in say medicine, whether or not those purposes were quite on the money in terms of improving people's health people Mm -hmm. were using electricity but they they didn't know what it was even in 1767 after a lot of these famous uh, experiments like uh, benjamin franklin's experiments joseph Priestley described electricity as the youngest daughter of the sciences (laughs) which i think is kind of a sweet thing to say but what was the invisible fire The electrical fire, it it seemed it was a natural force of the world, people understood. And yet it it commanded a sense of mystery because it was invisible most of the time. It could act at a distance like a ghostly force almost. You know, the attraction between objects could be Mm -hmm. like a ghost reaching out through the ether to pull things toward one another. It could spark in the dark. And uh, these were strange and mysterious phenomena. Even when people began to be able to control it, they didn't know what it was. So the the modern era of electrical research, I think, is often traced back to the to the creation of the Leyden jar, right? So the Leyden jar was a a thing that was invented in the seventeen forties, usually cited as seventeen forty five or forty six, discovered independently by different people at different times but the, the Leyden jar was what was then known as a condenser but it's what we'd now call a capacitor so in simple terms this is a device capable of storing and quickly discharging a large amount of electricity
1: yeah i've read uh, the the Leyden jar particularly the one uh, that was uh, created by uh, dutch instrument instrument makers edward von kleist and uh, peter van uh, muchenbroek that this was basically a glass jar full of water and it had a nail in it and this mm-hmm. was this was able to they were able to use this to store an electrical charge yeah they had uh, they had different metals on the inside and
0: outside and the the differential between them could allow electric charge to accumulate and then mm-hmm. you could
1: discharge it yeah and and pretty massively like apparently uh, the first time mushin Brock used the jar he basically shocked the hell out of himself i mean didn't die but tremendous amount of shock coming out of of this jar of water and nail. Well, but
0: once you look at what this kind of jar is capable of delivering a shock like that, Mm -hmm. obviously some applications could come to mind. Yes. And they sure did come to some minds, especially the mind of one Benjamin Franklin. So you might know about some of Benjamin Franklin's experiments with electricity. Uh, probably the most famous story is one we only have secondhand, actually. And that's the story about Franklin flying a kite tied to a key in a thunderstorm to demonstrate the electrical nature of lightning. You that's know, right. That you we, we only have
1: been in me at Disney. Cartoon to really go by. I don't know what that is. Really? What is thought, it? They did a whole uh, cartoon about Benjamin Franklin and the kite, but there's this mouse that's really the brilliance behind Ben, and, and he's con- constantly urging Ben on. I mean, just to, in. The Ben Franklin activities that are acceptable for children to watch. You know, I think this story
0: was uh, propaganda invented by the kite makers lobby. <laughs> no, but seriously, so we don't know if this story actually happened or not. It, it probably did. We get the story from uh, Franklin's friend Joseph Priestley, who. Rep- Reported it later, so not from Franklin himself. But Franklin certainly did do lots of experiments on electricity. He invented the lightning rod, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a rod mounted on top of a building that's connected to a wire leading down to a ground rod embedded in the earth. And what this does is it gives the lightning a an avenue of travel from the top of the building to the ground, uh, sort of a harmless path. Rather than it going through the building, starting fires, potentially damaging people
1: or structural elements. Yeah, it's like the expressway going around a major population center so that the traffic doesn't have to go directly through town where it can re- cause all sorts of havoc.
0: Yeah, so you've probably heard about these things, but you might not have heard about Franklin's
1: experiments in the electric slaughter of large fowl. Ah, specifically the turkey, which I, I do want to just throw in really quickly that um, – Franklin uh, famously said that uh, that he thought the turkey should be the national bird. Yeah, opposed to the eagle.
0: (laughs) A lot of thanks he gives it. He's
1: like national bird, you will die. (laughs) Yeah, why? Why you would think he would maybe go out and get shock the eagle since he saw the eagle as this kind of horrible, moral, morally offensive uh, bird as opposed to the the noble slightly vain and preposterous but but courageous turkey.
0: Yeah. Well, he what he he did see the
1: eagle as a thief and a scavenger, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's like that's that's really not our in our spirit. It should be the turkey.
0: Well, I guess there's no law that says don't kill what you believe is noble because <laughs> he believed the turkey to be notable, but he also wanted to roast it with electrical current and eat its flesh.
1: <laughs> well, I guess it's easier to obtain a turkey than an eagle. That's true. The that. eagles fight back.
0: Yeah. So uh, on April ninth, 1749, Franklin wrote to the scientist Peter Collinson a letter detailing the results of some recent experiments he'd done in electricity. And he ended with a strange proposal for a, quote, party of pleasure on the banks of the Schuylkill, <laughs> the river. And so this is what he said, quote, A turkey is to be killed for our dinners by the electric shock and roasted by the electric jack before a fire kindled by the electric bottle when the healths of all the famous electricians in England, France, and Germany are to be drank in electrified bumpers under the discharge of guns from the electric battery. Okay, first of all, what's an electric bumper? This is great. So Franklin explains this in a marginal note. He says an electrified bumper is a small, thin glass tumbler Uh, near filled with wine and electrified. Whoa. This when brought to the lips gives a shock. If the party be close shaved and does not
1: breathe on the liquor. How is that not factoring into modern mixology that uh, you think that would, I can see that going over huge at trendy bars, right? Especially glass. Yeah. Well, it it seems like it
0: would really go with the, you know, those trends in the 19, I guess was it the fifties where they'd have uh, electric movie seats that would shock you. during Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they should have served drinks that would shock you as well. Huh? So, anyway, Franklin's uh, attempt to slaughter turkeys with the electric discharge of Leyden jars, which is what he was using, the the Leyden jars we talked about earlier, Uh uh, those were his electric bottles. Uh, This happened in 1750, and it did not go so well, according (laughs) to a letter from one William Watson to the Royal Society in London. Quote, He first made several attempts on fowls and found that two large, thin glass jars gilt, holding each about six gallons, and such as I mentioned I had employed in the last paper I laid before you upon this subject, were sufficient when fully charged to kill common hens outright, but the turkeys, though thrown into violent convulsions and then lying as dead for some minutes, would recover in less than a quarter of an hour. Ah. So they had turkeys coming back from the dead. I mean, that's pretty messed up. (laughs) Uh, Watson continues, however, having added three other such to the former two, and he's talking about the laden jars there, uh, though not fully charged, he killed a turkey of about 10 pounds weight and believes they would have killed a much larger. He conceded, as himself says, that the birds killed in this manner eat uncommonly tender. You know, that's that's
1: one heck of a Yelp review but uh, <laughs> but but I do appreciate the spirit of the thing the the spirit of the dinner was we're just going to have a completely electric dinner everything from the death of the bird to the cooking of the bird to the the the, the curious way that the drinks make your lips tingle uh-huh. everything is going to be powered by this this, this divine energy that we are now harnessing with our modern science.
0: Well, it almost sounds like the scientific counterpart to those spirit parties people would have yeah. where, you know, the, where you'd have a seance and you'd have people doing all kinds of spiritualist games and demonstrations here. It, it's the other side of the coin, but they're using natural phenomena. Yeah. Though, then again how natural because all these mysteries remained what right. is the
1: electrical fire like ultimately they're playing with something that they don't completely understand um you know now I, with that I have to add the caveat that ha, that a lot of us today do not really completely understand the electricity that we're uh, we're employing.
0: Right. And, and we're, we're fine to let it power our toaster ovens and cook our Eggo waffles, but we don't really we
1: couldn't engineer electrical uh, dynamos ourselves. Exactly. And of course, that's just part of modern life. And then it should also be stressed as well that we haven't completely uh, filled in all the uh, the all the blanks, all the spaces in our understanding of electricity itself. Uh, um, though our- Which is kinda weird to imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But back to the dinner party. How did our host uh, recover from this, uh, setback of reanimated turkeys? Well, yeah, you might think that the turkeys coming back from the dead
0: would be enough to stun you into silence, but, but Franklin was in for another shock because he actually managed to shock himself <laughs> so bad that he was knocked unconscious. Oh. Uh, Watson writes later in this same, uh, letter that he says, from this experiment may be seen the danger even under the greatest caution to the operator when making these experiments with large jars. For it is not to be doubted, but that several of these fully charged would as certainly by increasing them in proportion to the size, kill a man as they before did the turkey.
1: Hmm. All right. So here we see the the two sides of the coin. Like on one hand, electricity can be managed. It can be used. uh, It can be played with. But it can also prove dangerous. Uh, In in high enough quantities,
0: Uh, certainly. And indeed, electricity experiments could prove deadly if proper care was not taken. I want to look at one example, which is uh, Georg Wilhelm Rickman. So he was a scientist. He was experimenting on electricity. He was conducting an experiment involving an insulated lightning rod during a storm in St. Petersburg in 1753. And Rickman got dead. He was struck dead in his lab by what has been described as a burst of ball lightning. I Hmm. want to read out the account here, which is bizarre and fascinating. Uh, So this is a letter to the Pennsylvania Gazette from March 1754, explaining what happened to Rickman. It says the place for the experiment was a kind of gallery with its entrance toward the north and a window toward the south. "'Whether the window was open is not known. "'All that is certain is that near the window was a cupboard four feet long "'on which were placed the electrical needle and a vessel of water, "'partly filled with brass filings, "'over which came an iron bar about an inch thick and a foot long,' fastened at the top to a wire which came down from the roof of the house through the gallery door. So they were sort of playing with death here. They're saying, okay, we've got a lightning rod on the top of the house. We've got it running down to an insulated wire in the room that's suspended over this bowl. And uh, so they continue... Uh, the professor judging from the needle that the Tempest was at a great distance assured Mr. Sokolow that there was no danger, but there might be at the approach, so they don't think the storms hit yet. But (laughs) uh, Mr. Rickman stood about a foot from the bar, attentively observing the needle. Soon after Mr. Sokolow saw the machine being untouched, a globe of blue and whitish fire, about four inches in diameter, dart from the bar against Mr. Rickman's forehead who fell backwards without the Least outcry, which is a creepy
1: way to die, right? You'd expect a person to scream. Yeah. Instead, just, he just, just silently falls. Right. And then this is important to keep in mind later this sort of accidental electro, uh, electrical death. The word death is just instantaneous, uh-huh. seemingly. Seemingly. Yeah.
0: Which is the scariest part based right. on what, <laughs> what we finally found out can happen. Uh, but also, toward the end of the same letter, what is the takeaway from this? Well, it, they learned some interesting things. Quote, The new doctrine of lightning is, however, confirmed by this unhappy accident, and many lives may hereafter be saved by the practice it teaches. Mr. Rickman, being uh, about to make experiments in the matter of lightning, had supported his rod and wires with electrics, per se, which cut off their communication with the Earth, and himself standing too near where the wire terminated helped with his body to complete that communication. Uh, so he formed the road. Instead of Franklin's model, where the electric current takes the freeway bypass around the city, this went straight
1: through the city and through a dude yeah. to the other <laughs> side. It, through basically through his living room. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, so based on that, you might think, well, surely everyone's learning the lesson here. Electricity yeah. is dangerous. You should not employ it at your dinner parties. You should not employ it in your parlor. And yet, uh, we see the trend going the opposite Yeah, direction. exactly the opposite way. So that was 1753 that, that
0: happened to Rickman. And, and at the same time in the salons and galleries of Europe and North America, electricity was becoming the hottest bit of edutainment, uh, that, that there had ever been. So mm-hmm. th- I, I want to draw now from mostly from a paper called Sparks in the Dark, the Attraction of Electricity in the 18th Century by Paola Bertucci. And she's been a really good source for us in these episodes. Uh, Several of her papers have been uh, big
1: sources of our research. She's done a lot of
0: work on the history of electricity, and and these papers are great
1: reads. Yeah, uh, we'll make sure to link out to some of her materials on the landing page for this episode at com because, yeah, she seems to be one of the, the, the forefront researchers and historians on the history of electricity. Yeah. So coming back to these sparking salons. So
0: in the Enlightenment climate of 18th century Europe, public demonstrations of electrical phenomena and experiments became really popular forms of entertainment among the wealthy. Mm -hmm. So if you walked into a Parisian salon in the mid 1700s, you might find a horde of socialites sitting silent in the dark watching a lecturer on natural philosophy charge an orb hanging atop a spike until it glowed, or they might give an audience member shocks of static electricity. And another funny thing you might see would be Benjamin Franklin sitting in the aud- audience as this was his scene. <laughs> this was like, uh, this was like the DC
1: punk scene. Yeah. Uh, but the Paris electricity scene, yeah. Th- it's th- that much a scene. One of the scenes that, uh, Franklin <laughs> frequented, uh, in in the city.
0: Okay, but uh so it was during the 1740s that the educated audiences in Europe and North America really became familiar with the power of the electric fire and it wasn't just Benjamin Franklin and his inner circle that were showing off all the sparkling experiments. Uh there was a whole generation of what what uh, Bertucci calls itinerant lecturers, uh which is great because that makes me think of itinerant priests or itinerant evangelists. Uh-huh. Uh, traveling around spreading the gospel message, except in this case, this is the electricity gospel. And so they would tour from place to place, giving demonstrations uh, uh, in an early incarnation of what we might call edutainment, I would say. They they would show off some sparks, show off some electromagnetic attraction, and
1: they'd say, "Are you not edutained?" <laughs> well, what are some examples of some of the demonstrations that they would roll out uh, for, the, uh, for the for the edutainment hungry uh, population? Right. So
0: one would be uh, having somebody touch an electrical apparatus, and then you'd see their hair rise up, mm-hmm. or you could see somebody become electrically charged and then attract small objects with one's hands. Uh, or you could use electrostatic induction to make objects move, for example, may- maybe making bells ring or something. Or you could darken the room and show sparks jumping between objects or electroluminescent glowing inside glass containers.
1: Now, the great thing about this, I imagine a lot of people are thinking this, is, and from a modern perspective, you think of Mr. Wizard, you think of various right. various science shows. Uh, uh, for me, I, I think Beekman. Beakman. Beakman, yeah. Uh, for me, I'm also reminded of the... Um, the sort of street festival they have for the the world science festival uh, in New York city every year uh, where kids go around, they go to different science booths and there's always at least one where they have some sort of electrical experiment going on. I mean, it's it, electrical experiments lend themselves so well to, to public uh, lectures and public displays and we're still into them to this day. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it,
0: it's important to notice how much of this was just spectacle I, I don't know how much the average person was learning from these demonstrations in the mm-hmm. salons, especially given how little the people lecturing probably knew about electricity. Like you said, we, they didn't know about electrons yet. Right. Uh, we didn't know what the electrical fire was. There were a lot of uh, uh, suppositions, you might say. Mm-hmm. But, But... <laughs> It's funny to imagine the level of confidence in the display and the spectacle of it versus what was actually probably misinformation being communicated to people. So the demonstrations really played to the senses. They had flashes of light, crackling noises, uh, smells, even sometimes like a sulfurous smell in the aftermath of things. Uh, a couple of examples of people who, who would give these things. One was, uh, Jean-Antoine Nollet, who was a French physicist and instrument maker, and he would arrange experiments with chains of people holding hands who would be shocked in unison as the person at one end of the chain touched the rod or the inner surface of the laden jar and the person at the other end touched the outer surface. And there's something almost weirdly orgiastic about this, isn't
1: there? Yeah, well, it reminds me of uh, these these scenes of seances taking place uh, more or less around the same time. Pulled hands in a circle, yeah. Yeah, and and, and all, all of this also reminds me of magic tricks, except in this case... The magic is real I mean, the magic is an is a natural phenomenon that we don't have at this point. We don't have all the answers for and thus still retains a lot of its magical qualities.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as much as these lecturers probably wanted to emphasize the the scientific and natural nature of the electrical phenomena, people were observing. Th- there is undoubtedly a very spiritual power to what people were experiencing at these mm-hmm. demonstrations, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple other things that might be showed off. One, one thing was medical electricity began to emerge in this period in the mid-1700s as the sort of useful incarnation of this force, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's funny to imagine back then. Uh, but but uh, though the medical utility of the electrical fire was still debated, demonstrators began in this period to definitely offer therapeutic electrical shocks to people who sought them for, I guess, primarily conditions of the nerves.
1: Yeah, I mean here's this uh electricity that has this kind of um uh, you know magical quality to it already. Mm-hmm. You're definitely gonna feel it. So you wrap a little bit of uh healing hocus pocus language around it and uh, you have yourselves uh, potentially one heck of a placebo there, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there, there were a couple other things that uh, Bertucci mentions that were often showed off. There, there were thunder houses and the uh, the Aurora flask. I love the idea of a thunder house. This is it was basically a demonstration. that was sort of an ad for the lightning rod because it was a model house. So imagine a dollhouse, then with a lightning rod sticking out the top of it. Then the demonstrators would shock the house with electrical discharge, and if the rod was properly grounded nothing would happen. But if the rod was ungrounded, a shock to the house would ignite gunpowder planted inside the dollhouse and cause an explosion. And then also there was a thing called the Aurora flask, which was a pear shaped glass bulb designed to simulate the luminous display of the Aurora Borealis inside a container. So that's a weird way that we could put this, this amazingly beautiful, vast uh, natural display inside a bottle. Which is almost a metaphor for what these people were doing. You know, they were taking the most powerful and mysterious, huge, grand forces of nature and, and
1: capturing it and putting it in a bottle that you could look into and tap on the glass. Yeah, lightning in a bottle, and then all the way to our modern time, where what is uh, what is a light bulb, but another form of lightning in a bottle, and yet the most uh, mundane thing imaginable.
0: Yeah, and I think because partly because of all these demonstrations, people began to think of electricity. As, uh, as sort of the, the embodiment of all the force of the cosmos. So in the second half of the 18th century, people were beginning to explain all kinds of natural forces through the, the electrical fire. So obviously lightning and thunder, but people started to say, well, earthquakes, that's probably electricity too. <laughs> uh, tornadoes, whirlpools, it's all electricity. And Bertucci says, quote, such demonstrations contributed to the construction of an electrical cosmos, health, sickness, Thunderstorm, earthquakes, and aurora borealis all resulted from the motions of the electrical fire. Again, taking on what sounds like kind of a spiritual
1: aspect. Yeah. It's
0: almost like the the you know the power and love of God that controls the motions of all
1: the spheres. Yeah. The sense that they're they're tapping into this this hidden network of energy that underlies all things. The kind of thing that I've seen I've seen uh, discussed in various, uh, you know, occult uh, or sort of spiritual uh, uh, papers where they're talking about, say, like there being a chaos matrix beneath reality. And if you can tap into that chaos matrix, then you have chaos, chaos magic at your disposal like this is this is as if one were suddenly saying, hey, we found the chaos matrix and we can make the chaos magic. To fly from the the tips of our fingers.
0: Now, what is the D&D alignment of the electrical phantom? Is it chaotic evil or chaotic neutral?
1: I think chaotic neutral. Uh, It's all but it it, it all depends on how you engage with it. Okay, now we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to hear
0: about one of the weirdest demonstrations of the electrical fire.
1: Hey everybody, you know the importance of having a quality, professional looking website out there today. I mean, that's, that's how you represent yourself to everybody. And you want it to look sharp, you want it to be easy to use, but you also don't want to completely break your brain or have to learn some sort of new code in order to build the thing. Right. If you, if you just
0: kind of go out there into the wild and say, Hey, I'm going to make my own personal website. You know what you're going to end up with. It's going to look like it was made by somebody who didn't know what they were doing. And even even to get to that point, it's going to be a, a rough journey. But if you want to have a website that looks like something that could have been made by a professional web developer, uh, even though you're not – you might want to think about Squarespace.
1: That's right. Their sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need to learn any code. The tools are intuitive, easy to use. And, hey, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So you can start your free trial site
0: today at squarespace.com. Uh, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code MINDBLOWN. That's our code, M-I-N-D-B-L-O-W-N, to get 10% off your first purchase, Squarespace.
1: You should. All right, we're back. Yes. uh, So we're going to discuss here the work of one Stephen Gray. Now, Stephen Gray did plenty of experiments in electricity, right? Yes. Yeah. He was uh, uh, an English dyer, the son of a dyer. Uh, He was uh, an astronomer and, uh, and indeed an electrical conduction pioneer. He's remembered for a number of discoveries and uh, the various experiments he conducted, uh, uh, you know, showed how electricity moves. Uh, But the most notable of these is uh, his 1731 experiment, uh, The Hanging Boy, which is a creepy name. It is. And you can uh, we'll try to include some links to some images of this because there's some wonderful um, uh, schematics for what this looked like, which don't still don't capture the full majesty of what uh, people saw, uh-huh. uh, because it's just it really resonates with occult dramatics. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like something out of a Ken Russell movie.
0: <laughs> I love that you make that comparison, uh, because Ken Russell really captures this kind of sense of the electrical demonstrations, right? This mm-hmm. this bizarre intersection of the magical and the scientific.
1: Yeah, totally. So I'm, I'm going to try and present it to you uh, as if you were showing up for a presentation of the hanging boy. Wait, so you
0: you're you're saying I've accepted an invitation to come view the hanging boy? Yes,
1: yes. I'm that kind of person. You are. You, you know, you you're, you're <laughs> one of the local, you're in the local science community, you're you're interested in this kind of thing, there's something cool going on, so you're going to go check it out. So you enter the private home of a of another upstanding member of the scientific community. Okay. And you come and you find that the furniture's been rearranged, the lighting has been dimmed, and everyone is gathered in uh, the largest room of the house for this very Peculiar experiment. So you've been looking forward to it for weeks. You're making a lot of assumptions about me and my yeah. feelings toward the Hanging Boy. The, this is the biggest This was a hit all <laughs> over Europe. This is like finally getting to see cats or something, right? Okay. Um, what is it? Tell me. Okay. Okay. So the main event here is that a nine-year-old boy. Don't worry, he's just a local street urchin, and they've paid him for his participation. Uh-huh. Nine-year-old boy is brought in in swaddling clothes, you know, dressed essentially like Cupid, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so already we're we're engaging uh, dramatic, symbolic uh, uh, power here, and then he is suspended from the ceiling by silk cords. Oh they got to be silk cords of course. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean <laughs> what what uh, to, to suspend the boy with just a uh, rope would be weird and just out of keeping with the uh, the symbolic <laughs> drama of the thing, right? Now just below the boy's head, uh, they've positioned a stand on which they've uh, they've placed small light flakes of brass. Well meanwhile our friend uh Mr. Gray here uh comes over with a charged glass tube, essentially a friction generator, and he's holding this near the boy's feet. Uh-huh. And I'll read you a quote uh to let and this is from the the letters sent to from Stephen Gray to one Cromwell Mortimer. Upon the tubes being rubbed and held near his feet without touching them, the leaf brass was attracted to the boy's face with so, with much vigor, so as to rise to the height of eight and sometimes ten inches.
0: Wh- so, well, hold on, wait, so they were drawing, uh,
1: pieces of brass leaf to his face yes so the boy's hanging there from the silk he touches this uh, electric wand at the boy's feet and then all these flakes uh, of metal begin to to drift up uh, fly up from the table through the air towards his face okay what else i got well, they would have the boy reach out and turn the pages of a book without physically touching it. Okay. Uh, volunteers from the audience were invited to touch the boy's hand, and in doing so, they were able to turn the pages in the book with the same electrical magic, just by touching the boy's hand. And, uh, finally, the, the main event was the lights were dimmed, and the volunteer was asked to touch the boy's nose. And that's when CRACK a visual spark flies between the flying boy and the audience member. Wow. So this, I mean, the whole thing is just fabulous because there's a sense of the boy as an angel. Yeah. Um, but also a child sacrifice. Exactly. There's a sense of child sacrifice. Uh, and, and they kind of make him the sort of a literal embodiment of electricity as a, as a, as a, as a virgin, as this, this, this child that is without uh, fault, uh, you know, a wholly blameless creature. Well, there you get into something else that I think is going
0: to be very important to talk about, because there's this mysterium. There's this great, strange mystery about what the electrical fire is. There's this spiritual element to it. But then there is also a very clear emerging theme of sexuality to electricity. Because one of the notes that I got from Bertucci about the hanging boy experiment was that uh, sometimes you mentioned that he would transfer the electric fire to somebody else and they would be able to attract things. Well, she mentions that sometimes the boy transmitted the electric fire to a young girl who would attract light objects to herself. So a strangely mm-hmm. sexual theme, there's like the passage of the thing across the sex barrier. And this wasn't the only case of sexual themes emerging in. Uh, electrical demonstrations. For example, uh, Bertucci tells us in one of her papers that uh, the presence of women and the accentuation of sex differences became a crucial part of these electrical demonstrations in the 18th century. For example, a really popular experiment was called the electrifying Venus. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, also known as the electric kiss, which was invented by the German professor Georg Matthias Boza. And it goes like this. So you've got a a beautiful lady standing on an insulated stool and an electrical apparatus charges her body with electricity. So this would probably be like a friction uh, generator. Okay. And after she's charged up, the demonstrator invites gentlemen from the audience to come up and steal a kiss from the electric Venus. Unfortunately for these amorous gentlemen, uh, as they approached the charged Venus with their lips, they would receive a spark to the mouth, and that would drive them back and discourage further attempts. Ha! Okay. So imagine how exciting this must have been to uh, you know a court lady in the 1700s who was sick of the advances and sexual harassment of the aristocratic men in her circle. They even try to kiss her, and they get a shock. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Bertucci goes on to note. It's like they're like the invisible fence, except for exactly. uh, for, for horny aristocrats. Okay.
0: <laughs> so Bertucci goes on to note that, uh, Boza even wrote a poem about electricity. He, he was kind of a showman type. <laughs> he wrote a poem about electricity, which he dedicated to the Princess of Gotha and the Duchess of Brule-Kollerath, uh, who were attendees of his demonstrations. And there's a section from the poem she quotes that says, Once only what temerity I kissed Venus standing on pitch. It pained me to the quick. My lips trembled. My mouth quivered. My teeth almost broke. (laughs) That's intense stuff. Yeah. So even the demonstrator himself, knowing the risks, could not resist an attempt to kiss the sparking Venus. But to please the fellows of the salons, uh, they would not be entirely discouraged in their feats of electrical manliness, uh, because for their amusement they could wield an electrified sword and use it to
1: ignite small quantities of liquor. Well, right. Well, they had that, and then to just sort of uh, leave everybody on a good note, right?
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. So the the psychosexual significance of electricity didn't even end there. Boza, that same guy, came up with the theory of the sexology of electric fire. And it's about as male chauvinist as you would guess. I want to quote from Bertucci, who writes, uh, characterizing it, the male fire emitted by metals and animal bodies was unsurprisingly strong and powerful. Sparks with their crackling sound were visible manifestations of this kind of fire. The female fire instead was a weak luminous emanation, the kind of light that characterized the Aurora Borealis.
1: I love that because he's kind of using science to recreate Taoism. In this uh, case, you know, the whole uh, uh, division of yin and yang energies uh, defining the universe. Oh, does that have a male-female element? Oh, yeah, yeah. One is like the, the male is uh, is heat and, and power and strength, and the, the female energy is uh, is colder and, and more subtle, and they're, uh, they're opposites in the universe.
0: Huh. Well, uh, that's the, the cosmic electric spiri- spirituality yet again. Yeah. So through the second half of the 18th century, there, there was a lot of popular thinking that associated electricity with sex, virility and fertility. Electrical imagery showed up in erotic poetry all the time. There'd be talks about sparks and friction and, uh, and medical experts even promoted sexual health cures. I should have said experts. You couldn't hear me doing air quotes, yeah. medical quote experts promoted sexual health cures via the electrical fire. And there'll be more on that when we talk about a guy named James Graham in the next episode. Uh, but there's a weird paradox emerging here with the relationship between electricity and virility and health. How come the body seems to be able to be, uh, I don't know, sort of animated by electricity in one sense? You could be sparked into action, and yet the discharge of electricity from a Leyden jar might be enough to kill you. That seems like a, a weird
1: tension there, right? Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to that uh, that that sort of weird uh, Taoist uh, uh, interpretation of male and female energies to a certain extent.
0: Yeah. And so later in the 1700s, this comes to a head, I think, in the argument about the nature of animal electricity. So like we said, there were electric fishes. And uh, so there was some knowledge about different types of bioelectricity. Uh but but what happened in the, in the 1780s
1: well we had a man by the name of luigi galvani all right. He was a mid 1780s uh, uh, Italian uh, physician, and uh, he—you <laughs> kind of—you said Italian with an Italian accent. Uh, well, you can't say uh, Luigi Galvani without giving right. into it a little bit, right? Okay. Uh, so, in, in one of his earlier experiments, he connected the nerves of a recently dead frog to a long metal wire and pointed it toward the sky during a thunderstorm, uh, and then with each flash, the do- the frog moved again as if with life. So, so the twitch. dead frog yes and and this this
0: suggests a kind of uh mechanical connection between the parts of the body and the electrical
1: fire right indeed i mean this is where we get the term galvanism from uh which refers to muscle contractions due to an electric current now at the time uh, galvani referred to this as animal electricity uh thinking he discovered a unique form of electricity something uh, intrinsic to the muscle tissue so External electricity could galvanize it, sure, but his argument was that it also possessed its own unique electricity as well.
0: So he was saying these were uh, the the bioelectricity and the external electricity were different types of electricity. Exactly.
1: Yeah, but you bet. You had two different species of electricity to deal with here, um, and this didn't set well with everyone, particularly right. um, another name that resonates with uh, electrical history. Um, uh, Alessandro Volta. Uh, You can hear the electrical terms in uh, both of their last names, right? Like galvanize and Volta. Yeah, so you know that this is this isn't just some some nobody entering the fray. Uh So Volta. He walks in, and he's intent on disproving animal electricity. He doesn't buy it. He asserts that the uh, the animals here in um, in Galvani's experiments uh, reacted to electricity produced by two different metals used uh, to connect their nerves and muscles, and uh, and that it's not any kind of intrinsic special electricity. And this argument eventually wins over the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, Galvani conducted experiments to counter the claim, but never got very far in trying to convince anyone. And he eventually dies.
0: But obviously, showing a con- connection between the workings of the human body which w- still in many senses were uh, mysterious at the time and yeah. and infused with spiritual and and soulish potential with this supposedly, uh, I don't know, purely natural
1: force like electricity that had to cause some feelings of maybe aporia, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly I don't want to imply that Galvani wasn't onto something and wasn't himself you know, a very, uh, intelligent guy that was making some breakthroughs in our understanding of electricity. But of course, these bioelectricity beliefs led to some pretty interesting and weird experiments, right? Yeah. Fast forward to uh, January 1803. Convicted murderer George Forster or Foster, depending on which source you're looking at, he dies by hanging at London's Newgate Prison. And then attendants transport his body to uh, the Royal College of Surgeons, also in London. So this in itself wasn't an uncommon practice. You have a fresh body. It's perfect for uh, uh, the exploration of human anatomy. Okay. But then they roll the corpse into a crowded operating theater where awaits uh Giovanni Aldini, the nephew of the late Luigi Galvani. Ah. Yeah. And as you would imagine uh, given uh, the podcast episode here, uh he's waiting with a battery and some connecting rods. Oh good. Yes. So you know what he's going to so do? They, do so they've
0: got a corpse
1: coming in. Yeah, he's, he's sitting there with this battery. Yeah. Is he is he twirling his mustache i I should hope so, um, maybe even with electricity but uh this is, <laughs> from the the records, this is what Aldini had to say about the the results here on the first application of the arcs, the jaw began to quiver, the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and the left eye actually opened. Ugh. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched and the legs and thighs were set in motion. It appeared to the uninformed part of the bystanders as if the wretched man was on the eve of being restored to life.
0: You know, and I bet. For the people at the time, they didn't necessarily know that wasn't
1: going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we we know now, but yeah, at the time was, we were still figuring out how electricity worked, what it did to the body, and so uh, so, so less informed members of the audience, it seemed entirely possible that he might have brought this character back to life yeah. in some form.
0: If it's conceivable that the electricity is the soul, mm-hmm. is the soul that animates the flesh, and uh, and the death causes the, this electricity to evaporate, could you restore the soul? that animates the flesh to the body by charging it back up.
1: Yeah, and plus, if you're, if you're buying into a basic biomechanical understanding or certainly mechanical understanding of the body, mm-hmm. if electricity physically animates the body, then why not the mind itself? Why not the, the, the soul? Why not the, the person entire? Um, and, of course, uh, a lot of this probably instantly brings to mind images of Frankenstein, of Dr. Frankenstein bringing his creation to life. Now funny I remember electricity being a big part of the movie but
0: I I and when I've read the book I don't remember much mentioning of electricity in it.
1: There's not a lot. Um but a uh, couple with it. first of all like the timeline works perfectly for this. So Mary Shelley's uh book comes out in 1818. So that's you know just a just a couple of decades in the wake. I think she would have been she would have been a small child at the time of uh, of the Georgia Forster Foster uh, reanimation experiment. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's actually a, a a portion of Frankenstein that reads as follows. Before this, I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. On this occasion, a man of great research in natural philosophy was with us, and excited by this catastrophe, he entered on the explanation of a theory which he had formed on the subject of electricity and galvanism, which was at once new and astonishing to me. Quote Dr. Frankenstein. Well, as
0: we'll mention in the next episode, Mary Shelley had more than one influence of mad science
1: on her life, probably. Oh, yes, yes. Um, because certainly, uh, you, I think you can see in Frankenstein, I mean, there's a lot to say about Frankenstein. We could do a whole podcast about uh, the cultural and scientific uh, underpinnings of that book. But uh, but, yeah, there's a, a lot of the, the this new age of, of understanding and reason uh, of, of our attempt to uh, to harness all these natural uh, wonders with our scientific understanding. You see that in these uh, these these electric experiments we've discussed. You see that in Frankenstein as well.
0: Okay, well I think that's gonna have to be it for our first episode, the first part of this series. We've we've made it from the mystery of the ancients to the uh to the to the strange obsession with electrical fire and the electrical cosmos of the mid and late seventeen hundreds. But in the next episode we're going to chase that rabbit further down the
1: Circuit. Circuit. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in the next episode, electric chairs, um, electrical personal massage devices, uh, electric religion. Um, and, you know, th- there there will be a little bit of Frankenstein. But don't worry, we'll also fit John Wesley in there as well. And, of course, the striking conclusion
0: to the story we opened with about the first legal electrocution
1: Indeed. And until then, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the Mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're Blow the Mind on both of those. We're StuffToBlowYourMind on Tumblr. Follow us there. And wherever you listen to us, uh, give us some some positive feedback there. Give us a positive review if the platform allows it. We're, of course, talking iTunes. We're talking Stitcher. We're talking Spotify. Uh, new uh, platforms are constantly rolling out. And Uh, we're making an effort to be on all of them.
0: Yes, that is the easiest way for you to help the show. And if you want to get in touch with us with any feedback on this episode or other recent episodes, you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com